Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. I would normally start by telling you what we're going to be covering on this episode, but the company I'm going to be covering has so many movies to talk about, this will be the start of our first multi-episode series. Because the history of Orion Pictures cannot be contained to just a single one-hour episode. The story of Orion Pictures starts in January of 1978. Actually, it starts in 1951, when major studio United Artists, at the time still controlled by Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford, hired Arthur B. Krim and Robert Benjamin to turn the company's fortunes around. The studio had suffered from years of unprofitability, and the company was on the verge of failure. In order to lure the men away from Eagle Lion Films, the J. Arthur Rank-created distributor that helped bring British movies like The Red Shoes to American theaters, Chaplin and Pickford made an interesting proposition to Benjamin and Krim. The two men were offered 10-year contracts, and if they could show a profit in any single year of the first three years of that contract, they would be able to buy a 50% stake in United Artists for just $1. On February 15th, Krim and Benjamin signed their contracts. And by the end of 1951, they owned 50% of United Artists. There were no big hits, but their series of singles and doubles in baseball parlance helped take United Artists from a loss of more than $870,000 in 1950 to a profit of $313,000 in 1951. 1952 would be an even better year for the company, buoyed by the success of films like The African Queen and High Noon, and a little movie called Buona Devil, the first 3D feature film. By 1955, Krim and Benjamin had bought out Chaplin's remaining 25% share of the company for $1.1 million, and Pickford's 25% share a year later for $3.3 million. For more than a quarter century, United Artists was on one of the hottest streaks the industry had ever seen. Their 1955 release, Marty, would win the Academy Award for Best Picture, as would their 1956 release Around the World in 80 Days, as would The Apartment in 1960, West Side Story in 1961, Tom Jones in 1963, In the Heat of the Night in 1967, and Midnight Cowboy in 1969. United Artists Movies would win three Best Pictures in a row in the mid-70s, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, and Annie Hall. Personally, I think Network was screwed out of the Best Picture Award by Rocky, but Network is also a United Artists release. United Artists would release all four Beatles movies, A Hard Day's Night, Help, Yellow Submarine, and Let It Be. They'd release all the Pink Panther movies. They released the Clint Eastwood Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns known as the Dollars Trilogy. And starting with 1971's Bananas, they would release every Woody Allen film for the rest of the decade. And, of course, they had one of the biggest franchises in the world with the James Bond series. In 1957, Krim and Benjamin would take United Artists public with a stock offering worth $17 million. While this would bring the men more than quadruple their original investment in the company in less than five years, it would also be the start of the new road that would lead to their eventual exit. In 1967, Transamerica Corporation an American holding company mostly involved in life insurance, saw continued growth potential in United Artists and purchased 98% of the outstanding stock. And in the process, Krim and Benjamin left the company when Transamerica installed David and Arnold Picker as the heads of UA. Except the Picker brothers would reverse the company's fortunes the wrong way, and Krim and Benjamin would replace the men who replaced them in 1970. But the seeds of distrust would already have been sown. Transamerica would make sure each UA movie had a logo that said United Artists, a Transamerica company, on the front of each UA movie, until they didn't. Although Krim and Benjamin would maintain some semblance of autonomy with Transamerica, the parent company would bristle when UA released an X-rated movie like Midnight Cowboy or Last Tango in Paris, demanding the A Transamerica Company byline be removed off of all prints of the film in all instances of advertising. 
And at one point, Transamerica wanted to change the name of the company from United Artists to Transamerica Films. But Krim was able to talk his overlords out of that impending fiasco. In early 1978, Krim would have a dispute with Transamerica CEO John Beckett over administrative expenses that became so contentious, on January 13th, Krim, Benjamin, and United Artists President Eric Pleskow tendered their immediate resignations. Within a week, Senior Vice Presidents William Bernstein and Mike Medavoy would also walk out as well. And more than 60 prominent producers and directors, including Robert Altman, Stanley Kubrick, Francois Truffaut, and Fred Zimmerman, would put out an ad in the major trades warning Transamerica that they were making a big mistake letting these titans of the industry leave. Not that Transamerica had a chance in bringing them back. In February, it was announced that the five men had made a deal with Warner Brothers to start up a new company called Orion Pictures. Orion would finance new movies, giving filmmakers complete creative autonomy, as they had at United Artists, and they would handle the advertising of the movies, and the films would be distributed by Warners for a fee. With more than $100 million in credit lined up, Orion Pictures quickly made production deals with the likes of James Caan, Francis Ford Coppola, John Milius, Barbara Streisand, John Travolta, and John Voight to make movies for the company. In addition, regular collaborators like Woody Allen and Blake Edwards would leave United Artists as soon as their current contracts were up and start making films for Orion. The first movie to be released through Orion was George Roy Hill's A Little Romance, which hit theaters on April 27, 1979. It might not be the most obvious movie from the director of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Slaughterhouse-Five, The Sting, and Slapshot, but it's a damn good movie, and would help set audiences up for his next movie, The World According to Garp, one of my personal favorites of all time, both as a novel and a movie. A Little Romance stars French actor Thelonious Bernard in what would be his only movie role ever, and American actress Diane Lane in her first of more than 50 film roles to date, as two young would-be lovers who meet in Paris and then travel to Venice, where they hope to seal their love forever with a kiss underneath the Bridge of Sighs at sunset, after they are delighted by stories of love from Sir Laurence Olivier. I know I'm not the only guy in my age group who can say his lifelong crush on Diane Lane started right here. She had star power even at 13, and more than held her own against one of the greatest actors of all time. The critical consensus wasn't very good when it was released, but its effortless charm has wowed audiences for more than 40 years. It's hard to find box office numbers for the film, but various articles from the day indicate the film did not perform as one might expect from the director of Butch Cassidy and The Stingwood. But it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, and it would win for George De La Rue's gorgeous score. The movie is currently not available on any American streaming service. But the Warner Brothers print-on-demand archives label does have a bare-bones Blu-ray or DVD available for purchase. For most of the remaining movies, they are available to rent from Amazon Prime, Google Play, iTunes, Vudu, and or YouTube, and most of them will be in the $1.99 to $3.99 range. Next up for Orion would be Jonathan Kaplan's coming-of-age drama Over the Edge, which opened on May 1st. The film debut of Matt Dillon, Over the Edge told the story of a group of teenagers who turned who to sex and drugs and petty crime as a way of rebelling against their parents and the planned community they live in. The film got good reviews, but because of negative publicity surrounding other youth gang films like Boulevard Nights and The Warriors, Orion didn't give the film a wide release. It would be a few years before regular screenings on HBO would elevate the film to cult status. Richard Linklater has called the movie a major influence on Dazed and Confused, and music video director Samuel Bayer used the movie as inspiration for his very first music video, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. The film also has a killer soundtrack with songs from The Cars, 
Cheap Trick, Jimi Hendrix, The Ramones, and Van Halen. Their third film would become their first hit. Director Philip Kaufman, who was fresh off his inventive remake of Invasions of the Body Snatchers, had wanted to make a movie version of the Richard Price novel The Wanderers for years. Now that he had a hit under his belt, he was able to get producer Martin Ransahoff to put up a couple million dollars, and Kaufman was able to shoot in the Bronx where the novel is set, and his team was able to effectively turn the clock back to 1963 when the story is set. You'll recognize some of the actors, including Marion Ravenwood herself, Karen Allen, Ken Wall, who would go on to become the star of the TV show Wise Guys in the mid-80s, and Tony Ganois, who would star as Meat in the Porky's movies and would later team with Ken Wall on Wise Guy. You might also recognize the great Linda Mons, future Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis, and future Seinfeld foil Wayne Knight in the mix. The movie would be released on the 4th of July and would gross $5 million in America and another $18 million overseas. And it would feature a soundtrack boasting classics by The Contours, Dion from Dion and the Belmonts, The Four Seasons, The Isley Brothers, Ben E. King, and The Shirelles. Their next three movies would also help solidify the company as a true up-and-comer. Everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. This is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. He was born into the golden age of Roman rule. Do we have any crucifixions today? 139, sir. Special celebration. It was a time of miracles. I was blind, now I can see. Friendly persuasion and gracious invaders. But there was just one thing on everyone's mind. Sex, 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 that's all they think about it. In those days, getting stoned wasn't against the law. It was the law. Things looked bad for the people of Jerusalem. Still a few crosses left. Until Brian dropped in. He was a born leader. Brothers, brothers, we should be struggling together. We are. A potential martyr. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. And his mother's joy. They think I'm the Messiah, Mum. The Messiah! There's no Messiah in here! There's a mess, alright, but no Messiah! And now, it's up to Brian to deliver a despairing nation from the throes of oppression. <laughs> Tough luck, Jerusalem. This is the life of Brian. Just when you thought you were saved. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy. Terrific race, the Romans. Terrific. Monty Python's second dramatic narrative, The Life of Brian, would arrive in theaters on August 17th. You don't need me to tell you about one of the funniest movies of all time. Suffice to say that the $4 million movie would gross $20 million in the United States and another $40 million worldwide. I don't have to tell you where to stream it or rent it because you already own it on Blu-ray and watch it a couple times a year. Two weeks later, for Labor Day weekend... Orion would release Nicholas Meyer's fantastic Time After Time. The time is 1893, and novelist and inventor H.G. Wells makes a startling announcement. Gentlemen, I am talking about traveling through time in a machine constructed for that very purpose. 
The first to use the machine, however, is Dr. John Leslie Stevenson. <laughs> better known to history as Jack the Ripper. And what was to be a voyage of discovery, in an instant, becomes a manhunt through time. From 19th century England to 20th century San Francisco. Certainly, certainly. You were literally the last person on Earth I expected to see. You've given me quite a turn. I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. You take me back? How do you propose to do that? By force? Be reasonable, John. We don't belong here. A 19th century gentleman. Are you quite certain I'm not forcing you to do anything that you're requesting me? And a 20th century woman. My God, Herbert, I'm practically raping you. Yeah, that's true. Join forces to capture a criminal from the past at large in the modern world. But even more than they want him, he needs them. You throw me the key and I'll release the girl. On your honor, John, you have my word as a gentleman. Now, there's just one thing. I would have expected that you'd notice by now that I am not a gentleman. Say goodbye. Goodbye, Herbert. You haven't instructed him in the use of one of these machines, have you? Checkmate, and you've lost again. A romantic adventure, a breathless chase around the world and across a century. Time after time. You probably recognize the voices of the main actors there. Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells, David Warner as Jack the Ripper, and Mary Steenburgen as the love interest. I was 11 when this came out, and I must have seen it at least five times in theaters during that fall. I was transfixed by the idea of time travel being presented in such a different way than I had ever experienced before, and I admit the film still holds up pretty well more than 40 years later. The $5 million production would gross $13 million at the box office. And then, their first true blockbuster. George Weber is a successful songwriter. Elevator music. I'm very big in elevators. And everything is going his way. <laughs> With friends who respect him. a woman who loves him. He couldn't ask for more. But George is about to discover that even a man who has everything doesn't have everything. She was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. There's nothing more exciting than a fantasy. It can give life a new meaning. And most of all, it can make a grown man act like a child. I think you're uh, gonna need a lawyer to help you with this one, Mr. Weber. Yeah. Marriage is a sacred commitment designed on Earth. On a scale from one to ten, Blake Edwards presents a ten. Whatever I was thinking wasn't anything special and suddenly there she was and I reacted. You're becoming obsessed with a beautiful young girl. Even though he doesn't know who she is. Or where she comes from. He'll cross the hottest sands. <gasps> climb the highest mountains. <clears throat> sail the deepest seas. Aero, Mexico and travel around the world to make his dream come true. Because on a scale from one to ten, 
George Weber is about to meet an 11. Tonight, I spend with you. Dudley Moore. Sir, uh, can I get you anything else? George! Julie Andrews. George! Introducing Bo Derrick. Did you ever do it to Ravaz Valero? In Blake Edwards, 10. A fantasy fulfilled for adults who can count. Blake Edwards' 10 wasn't just a blockbuster. It was a cultural touchstone, the last gasp of the hedonistic 70s, the end of the me decade. The film, which would gross an astounding $75 million when it came out in October 1979, inflation adjusted to $265 million in early 2020, would also lead to a resurgence in Dudley Moore's career, as well as making Bo Derrick the sex symbol for the first part of the 1980s, and it was directly responsible for dozens of poor copies of the basics of the story, where a sexually frustrated, middle-aged white man tries to fuck a hot younger girl. It wasn't a very good movie then, and it's not a very good movie now. On October 22nd, four days before the opening of their next movie, Robert Benjamin, the co-chairman of Orion, passed away in Manhasset, Long Island, after a brief illness. The following April, at the 52nd Academy Awards, Mr. Benjamin would be posthumously awarded the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award, which is awarded annually in honor of an individual's outstanding contributions to the humanitarian causes. To date, he is the only recipient of the Hirschholt to be announced and awarded after their passing. I'm sure someone will note that Audrey Hepburn died before she could accept her Hirschholt, but the announcement of her honor was made before her passing. In late October, they'd earned some of their best reviews of their young history when they opened Louis John Carlino's The Great Santini. Robert Duvall, who was already wowing audiences as the surf-loving Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, plays another Lieutenant Colonel here, Bull Meacham, a Marine pilot based in South Carolina who has trouble relating to his family, and especially his teenage son Ben, in a conflictless time in American history between the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Actually, Orion would open this movie in 87 theaters in North Carolina and South Carolina on October 26, not even grossing $84,000. It is said that local audiences mistook the title The Great Santini to be a circus comedy instead of an earnest military drama, and that's why they stayed away. Orion and Warner Brothers quickly pulled the movie from release, and would give the film a couple test runs a few weeks later in other markets with other titles. In Fort Wayne, Indiana, it was known as Sons and Heroes. In Peoria, Illinois, it was called The Ace. In Rockford, Illinois, the movie is called Reaching Out. But audiences in those markets ignored the film as well, and Orion decided to cut its losses and call it a day. They would sell the cable rights to HBO, and prepared a version to be shown on airplanes in order to recoup some of their losses. But producer Charles Pratt wouldn't give up on the film. He got a promise from Orion that if he could raise the money to buy some ads in the local papers, they would give the film a shot in New York City. It took a while, but the film would finally open at the Guild Theater on 50th Street in Midtown Manhattan on July 14, 1980, under its original title, where it would break house records. A second week at the Guild would perform equally well, but the film, under that alternative title The Ace, would premiere on HBO at the end of the month, hampering future box office receipts. The $4 million movie would end up grossing $4.7 million between its 1979 and 1980 releases, and because it didn't open in Los Angeles or New York until nearly a year after its original theatrical release in the South, the movie ended up being nominated for two Oscars for 1980, one for Robert Duvall as Best Leading Actor, and one for Michael O'Keefe as Best Supporting Actor. The Great Santini is one of those movies that, after you watch it, you're just going to scratch your head and wonder how so many people missed the boat on this one when it was first released. Duvall is fantastic, and one wonders what kind of career O'Keefe would have had 
if this was a bigger hit and his best-known movie, Caddyshack, had not done so well. Orion's last movie of 1979 was Promises in the Dark, a rather bad drama featuring Marsha Mason as a doctor who has to deal with the pressures of her job and a recent divorce and finds a new lease on life thanks to one of her patients, a teenage girl dying of cancer. The reviews weren't good, neither was the box office. Orion would start 1980 off with an Alan Arkin comedy called Simon, written and directed by Marshall Brickman, who was Woody Allen's co-writer on Sleeper, Annie Hall, and Manhattan. Simon sees Arkin parade through the film as a psychology professor who has been brainwashed by a group of scientists into thinking he's an alien. It's got a great supporting cast, including Madeline Kahn, Austin Pendleton, Wallace Shawn, Fred Gwynn, Brian De Palma regular William Finley, and Max Wright, who would later be known for co-starring with an alien puppet on the sitcom ALF. Simon wants to say a few things about television and how it shapes American culture, but Network did it so much more viciously and succinctly a few years earlier. Still, Simon managed to gross $6 million in theaters. Now, if you were a regular listener of Scott Weinberg and Drew McWeeny's great 80s all-over podcast, you might remember this next movie, Die Laughing, the Robbie Benson comedy about an aspiring singer who becomes involved in a conspiracy to kidnap a monkey that has in its little brain a scientific formula that could destroy the world. Now, I have nothing against Robbie Benson, but he was the fat-free plain yogurt of actors in the late 70s and early 80s. You add Robbie Benson to a recipe when he will add a bit of texture, not for any flavor, and you certainly don't have Robbie Benson produce a movie written by and starring Robbie Benson, featuring songs written and performed by Robbie Benson, because those results, as you can expect, would be disastrous. Even with a supporting cast that includes Bud Court, Peter Coyote, Charles Durning, Charles Fleischer, and Elsa Lanchester, this movie sucks, and it didn't do much when it opened in April of 1980. Speaking of Orion Pictures movies that didn't do much when they opened in April 1980, I present John Hurd, Nick Nolte, and Sissy Spacek in Heartbeat. The movie, written and directed by John Bynum, would follow the love triangle between Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy, and Carolyn Cassidy while Kerouac was writing On the Road. Now, the movie's pretty damn good, and how could it not be with that leading cast? But as we've seen with pretty much any movie that has anything to do with beat writers, audiences did not respond positively. The $3.5 million production would not even gross $1 million. It would be another three months before Orion would release another movie. On July 25th, they'd unleash onto the world one of the funniest movies ever made. I'm all right. Caddyshack was a comedy nerd's wet dream. It would feature the first on-screen parody of two of Saturday Night Live's biggest stars, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray, plus two of comedy's biggest stars at the time, stand-up comedian Rodney Dangerfield in his first major movie role, and Ted Knight, the venerable comedic actor best known as anchorman Ted Baxter on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Harold Ramis, the SCTV and National Lampoon veteran who helped write Animal House, would make his feature directing debut here and would help write the screenplay with his former Lampoon compatriot Douglas Kenny and Bill Murray's brother Brian Doyle Murray, who based many incidents in the script on his own experiences as a caddy in suburban Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s. If you know and love Caddyshack, you know all of the disasters that befell the movie's production and how it never should have worked as well as it did. The film would open in 656 theaters and it would be the number one movie in the nation that weekend with a 3.1 million gross. When it was finally played out in theaters 22 weeks later, the film would have sold almost $40 million worth of tickets. <laughs> the less said about their next movie, the fiendish plot of Fu Manchu, the better. 
The last film completed by Peter Sellers before his untimely passing, two weeks before the already planned August 8th release, it features some of the worst racist Asian stereotypes ever committed to the silver screen. It's an absolute disaster at every level, not even worth seeing for Helen Mirren at her absolute prime babeness. Fuck this movie. Seriously. Don't find it. Remember Sellers with some of his great work, like his film before this, Hal Ashby's truly brilliant being there, or any of the Pink Panthers, or Dr. Strangelove. Hell, remember him with practically anything else he made than this piece of shit. Halloween 1980 would see the release of Mike Newell's first movie, the mummy-themed horror film The Awakening. It's a silly film, featuring Charlton Heston at some of his worst scenery-chewing ever committed to celluloid. The movie was widely panned upon release, and even director Newell can admit it, it is utterly terrible. Still, the film had a decent opening, considering it was opening on Halloween Day itself. The movie opened on 909 screens and grossed $2.7 million that weekend, on its way to an $8.4 million box office total. Egyptian tomfoolery would also play a role in their next release, Sphinx, Orion's first release of 1981. Directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, former Best Director Oscar winner for Patton, this adaptation of the Robin Cook bestseller starred Leslie Ann Down as an Egyptologist who finds herself targeted for death by black marketeers when she journeys to the Valley of the Kings to find an ancient tomb. It's one of those movies from another time where it's completely acceptable to cast Englishmen like Frank Langella, John Reese davies and John Gielgud as Middle Eastern men, while shuffling more authentic Arab actors into stereotypical supporting roles. In his review of the movie, Vincent Camby of the New York Times noted that the film, shot on location in Budapest in Egypt, used its location so poorly that the filmmaker could have saved money by shooting the whole thing in Queens. And Canby wasn't wrong. The $10 million movie would only be released in 214 theaters on February 13th and would gross less than half a million dollars that weekend. But in those pre-home video, pre-streaming days, the film managed to play in theaters for almost a year, although its lifetime ticket sales would be slightly more than $2 million. On April 10th, Orion would move from Egypt to medieval England for John Borman's Excalibur. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and in despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power. Excalibur. Meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of. 
for many people in my age range, there were three entry points to The Legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. First, there was Disney's animated version, The Sword and the Stone, which we all saw when it was re-released in the theaters in December of 1972. Then we witnessed a rather silly retelling of the story when Monty Python and the Holy Grail was released in the summer of 1975. And then we got Excalibur, a serious and gorgeous adaptation of the tale, which introduced many of us to those who would become some of our favorite actors of the next 40 years. Not only would the film star Nigel Terry, Nicole Williamson, Helen Mirren, and Patrick Stewart, it would also be the film debuts of Liam Neeson and Gabriel Byrne and Karen Hines. Although fantasy films often have spotty records at the box office, audiences were ready for Excalibur. Despite some rather poor reviews upon the original release, the film would open in the top spot of the box office charts, earning $4.5 million from 692 theaters, on its way to earning nearly $35 million throughout the spring. Also arriving in theaters in April, on the 24th, would be Oliver Stone's second movie as director, The Hand. Michael Caine stars as a comic book artist who loses his hand in an auto accident with the missing appendage taking on a life of its own as a murderer of the artist's perceived enemies. It's a truly silly movie, and it's little wonder why John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, and Christopher Walken turned down the lead role. Caine admits he only took the role because he needed the money to have a new garage built over his estate. Evil Dead 2 would do the whole severed hand thing much better a few years later. Not that 1981 audiences would know that at the time. Audiences wouldn't know much about this movie either. Opening in only 183 theaters that weekend, The Hand could only manage to make $567,000 that opening weekend, and it finished up with just under $2.5 million a few weeks later. July 1981 would be a busy month for Orion, releasing three movies in successive weekends. On the 17th, they would log their biggest hit film to date. completely honest, I've never understood the appeal of this movie. I get that it was a feel-good comedy about two unlikely people coming together and all that. And sure, John Gielgud is quite funny and was extremely deserving of a long-overdue Academy Award, but I could never muster any empathy for Dudley Moore's drunken billionaire buffoon. And if I don't give a rat's ass about the lead character for whom the movie is named after, it's just not going to work but it did for a lot of people. After a slow start at the box office with only $2.7 million from 701 theaters, the film would play for damn near a year in theaters and finish with a gross of over $95 million. One week later on the 24th, Orion released the horror film Wolfen. Based on the novel by Whitley Stryber, Albert Finney stars as a retired New York Police Department captain who returns to the forest to help solve a series of inexplicable murders throughout the city. I find the movie to be rather preposterous, but I seem to be in the minority on this one too. The film holds a very good consensus on both Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, and the film would be a solid double for Orion. It opened on 967 screens and grossed $3 million during its opening weekend, and would finish with $10.6 million after several weeks. And then on the 31st, Orion would let loose another real stinker of a movie, Under the Rainbow. Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher lead a cast of little people in a story based on stories of the actors playing the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz trying out for the movie. It is as bad as it sounds, but that didn't stop audiences from flocking to it. 
Maybe the film would have made Orion some money if it hadn't been saddled with an unexplicable $18 million budget. And it would eventually gross $18.8 million after opening with a $2.3 million opening weekend from 488 theaters. But since studios only get about 55% of the ticket sales back as theater rentals, and Orion still had to spend millions of dollars promoting it, and they needed to give Warner Brothers a portion of those rentals as a distribution fee, Under the Rainbow would finish millions of dollars in the red. Orion would release one more movie that summer, the Sidney Lumet crime drama Prince in the City. In many ways, the film is another side of the same coin as Lumet's 1973 drama Serpico. Both feature stories of real-life NYPD officers who choose to expose police corruption. But where Al Pacino's Frank Serpico was a good cop trying to do the right thing, Treat Williams' Danny Cielo was not a very good cop. But when he was asked to participate in in an investigation into police corruption, he sees it as his one-way ticket out to save himself instead of getting arrested and prosecuted for his own crimes. Originally, Prince in the City was supposed to be a Brian De Palma movie featuring Robert De Niro, but they both dropped out for other projects, and Lumet quickly came on board. He took the film as an opportunity to repair the damage he felt he caused the NYPD in the way he portrayed cops in Serpico, but audiences weren't ready for that. The two-hour and 47-minute movie would do gangbusters when it opened at the Cinema 1, the Cinema 2, and the Cinema 3 in New York City on August 19th, grossing nearly $65,000 from just those three screens. The film would slowly go wider in late September, but it really didn't do very well outside after New York City, grossing $8.1 million by the time it left theaters around Christmas time. Orion would close out 1981 with two releases in December. The first was Alan J. Pakula's Rollover. Now, when Alan J. Pakula is on his game, the end results could be incredible. He started as a producer for director Robert Mulligan and helped bring To Kill a Mockingbird and Up the Down Staircase to the screen before striking out as a director on his own in the 1969 movie The Sterile Cuckoo. He would then make Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, and Starting Over, and his next film after Rollover would be Sophie's Choice, and he would later make Presumed Innocent and The Pelican Brief. So how the hell he could completely fuck up a political thriller featuring Jane Fonda and Hume Cronin, I have no clue. Well, putting Chris Christopherson in the lead would be a good start. He's horrible as a bank president who discovers a conspiracy involving global financial insolvency and a single secret bank account that may be stopping the American dollar from collapsing. His scenes with Fonda lack any kind of chemistry, and the film would do just okay when it opened in theaters on December 11th. It would gross $2.25 million from 755 theaters opening weekend, and it would finish with $10.85 million in ticket sales after nine weeks of release. Their final film of 1981 would be the first film from their production deal with Burt Reynolds, Sharky's Machine. Reynolds would direct himself in a great cast including Bernie Casey, Charles Durning, Earl Holliman, Brian Keith, Richard Liebertini, Henry Silva, and newcomer Rachel Ward, who would be nominated for a Golden Globe as Best New Star of the Year. Unfortunately, that was the year that she, Elizabeth McGovern, Howard E. Rollins, Kathleen Turner, and Craig Lawson would all lose in this category to Pia Zadora. Reynolds plays Tom Sharkey, a narco sergeant who gets busted down to vice when a collar goes wrong. It's an interesting movie, and I don't want to give much of it away. And what should have been a step in the right direction for Reynolds, away from silly comedies and back towards the thrillers that made him a star to begin with. In fact, Reynolds wanted his deliverance director, John Borman, to direct him in the movie, but Borman was too busy finishing Excalibur, and he suggested Reynolds just directed himself. The film would open on 1,388 screens on December 18th, grossing $3 million and coming in second to the Belushi and Ackroyd comedy Neighbors. By its fourth week in theaters, it would be number one nationwide, 
and it would finish its theatrical run after nine weeks and $35.6 million in ticket sales. And 1981 would be a decent year for Orion at the Academy Awards. After winning one Oscar in their initial year of existence, four of their movies this year would be nominated for eight awards, and Arthur would win two. John Gielgud for Best Supporting Actor, and the song Arthur's Theme for Best Original Song. 1982 would start out rather quietly for Orion. They would not release their first movie of the year, The Escape Artist, until the end of May, but we'll get to that film in a moment. While the startup deal with Warner Brothers had been advantageous to both companies, the executives at Orion wanted to take more control. Their original distribution deal with Warner's ended in February 1982, and they made a new deal with their benefactor to continue releasing their movies through Warner's until they could set up their own distribution company. It would take a few months, but Orion decided it would be better to buy an already existing distributor and fold them into Orion rather than start up their own company from scratch. After kicking the tires on Allied Artists and and Embassy Pictures, two companies we will be covering in future episodes, Orion purchased Filmway Productions with the help of HBO and private equity firm Warburg Pincus, and Filmways would be reincorporated as Orion Pictures Corporation on August 31st. We'll also get into Filmways in a future episode, even though they only distributed nine movies in the 1980s before being sold to Orion. Okay, so The Escape Artist. The movie would be the directorial debut of cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, who at that point of his career had only been the DP of three movies. But when two of those movies are being there and the Black Stallion, someone's eventually going to give you a chance in the director's chair pretty damn quick. That someone was Black Stallion producer Francis Ford Coppola, who was fulfilling the second movie of his deal with Orion. Griffin O'Neill, the son of Ryan O'Neill, plays the teenage magician's son of the greatest escape artist outside of Houdini. A pickpocketed wallet soon finds the young man on a collision course with the crooked mayor of his town and the mayor's even more corrupt son. The film is an entertaining yarn, boosted by the movie's magic consultant Ricky Jay's inventive tricks created for the film. The movie would also be magician and comedian Harry Anderson's first screen appearance and the final screen appearances for Desi Arnaz and Joan Hackett, as well as the final film for Jackie Coogan, who had started his career 59 years earlier as the titular kid in Charlie Chaplin's masterpiece. The cast would also include Raul Julia and Terry Garr, who would also co-star in Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart, as well as John P. Ryan, M. Emmett Walsh, David Clennon, and a very young E.G. Daly. The film would only open on two screens on May 28th, and it would do a rather phenomenal $11,661 per screen average that weekend. But the film would fall flat pretty quick. By the time it left theaters a few weeks later, the film would have only grossed $143,369 in total. July 16th would see the release of A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy, the company's first collaboration with Woody Allen after he completed Stardust Memories, his final film for United Artists, two years earlier. It would also be the first film collaboration between Allen and his then-new girlfriend Mia Farrow, although the couple had been together for more than a year before Allen cast her in the lead female role, after his first choice for the role, former girlfriend Diane Keaton, passed because she would be busy finishing Reds with her then-boyfriend Warren Beatty and was about to start shooting Shoot the Moon with Albert Finney. Jose Ferrer would star as a philosopher who'd take his much younger fiancé, played by Farrow, to spend the weekend in upstate New York with his cousin, played by Mary Steenburgen, and her eccentric inventor husband, played by Woody Allen. Allen regular Tony Roberts and Julie Haggerty would round out the cast, as the three couples traded partners behind each other's backs over the course of the weekend. The critical consensus at the time indicates most were respectful, but not enthusiastic over the film. And it would open with $2.5 million in ticket sales from 501 theaters, on its way to a $9 million gross after 10 weeks of a release. 
Now, remember when I mentioned Escape Artist was the second film Orion would make with producer Francis Ford Coppola? That's because the first film they would make with him, in fact, the first film they would announce after forming the company, Vim Vendor's Hammett, would begin shooting before The Escape Artist, but it would not come out for a year afterward. Why the delay? Vendor shot his American debut on location in San Francisco in February of 1980, and he was proud that all of the $7 million movie had been filmed on location on the streets of the city, with not a single frame exposed on a studio set. Production would last through June, but once he turned in his first cut for the film, the top brass at the studio hated it. They felt he had spent too much time on the life of Dashiell Hammett once he became a writer, and not enough time on Dashiell Hammett the detective, that there wasn't enough action in the film to keep audiences entertained. So the production would be given another million and a half to literally shoot another movie. A 2008 article at the AV Club website suggests that Coppola himself directed the new scenes, but without any attribution as to where that information came from. In a 2015 interview with Rodrigo Perez of IndieWire, Vim Vendors himself says he directed all of the footage for the new version of the movie, which was 100% shot on one soundstage at Coppola's Zoetrope Studios in Los Angeles, and that maybe 10 shots from his original shoot all San Francisco exteriors, made it into the final product. And what happened to that original version of Hammett? No one knows. Years later, Vim Benders wanted to do a DVD with both versions of the movie together, but the person in charge of materials inventory at Zoetrope couldn't find anything from the original shoot. But after all that time and effort, audiences just completely ignored the final film. It would get a release in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Toronto on September 17th, but there is no immediate information about how well the film did in those engagements. It would open again in Los Angeles on May 20th, 1983, and would gross $37,724 at 12 theaters, and it would open in 11 theaters in the greater New York area on July 1st, but by then Orion wasn't tracking the grosses anymore. Amityville 2 The Possession was a rather tepid follow-up to the surprise 1979 Amityville Horror. Since the happenings of the Amityville Horror were based on the family who moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue after the DeFeo family murders and all the strange shit that they claimed to have happened before they fled for their lives, it was only natural that the sequel, I'm sorry, I mean prequel, documents the DeFeo murders. Although the family in the sequel, I mean prequel, isn't the DeFeo family, but the Montelli family because, uh, who knows, it's a pretty messed up film, and it could have been worse. I mean, this is a film based on a true story about a family that was killed by its eldest son, and the director thought to himself, hey, that's not fucked up enough. Let's throw in a scene where the dad anally rapes the mom and another scene where the kid who's going to kill everyone in a few minutes fucks his own sister. That should make people really upset. Thankfully, those scenes were eventually removed from the film after test audiences found them not upsetting, but just unnecessary. When the film was released on September 24th, it would be the number one movie in the nation, grossing $4.1 million from 1,200 theaters, on its way to grossing more than $12.5 million dollars, by the time it left theaters shortly after Halloween. Orion would finish 1982 with two movies in October, or, more specifically, two movies directed by Ted Kotcheff and featuring Brian Dennehy, released within three weeks of each other. The first one you've probably never heard of, Split Image. It would be the third film Orion would make featuring Michael O'Keefe, once again playing a character named Danny, this time an all-American college athlete who becomes involved in a youth-oriented cult and his family struggle to bring him home. Dennehy and Elizabeth Ashley would play his parents, Karen Allen, the young woman who brings Danny into the cult, Peter Horton as one of the other young people of the cult, James Woods as the bounty hunter the parents hire to bring Danny back home, and Peter Fonda as the leader of the cult. That's a damn good cast and Kotcheff can be a very good filmmaker. But this one isn't one of those good films on his resume. 
It feels more like a TV movie of the time, and audiences pretty much waited in until it played on TV to see it. When it opened in 129 theaters on October 1st, the movie would gross just $264,000, good enough for 27th place on the domestic box office charts that weekend, and Orion would not track the grosses after those first three days. The second Ted Kotcheff, Brian Dennehy, Orion Movie of the Month did a little bit better. John Rambo, a drifter, just passing through their town. Morning! Headed north or south? North. Now jump in. I'll make sure you're heading the right direction. You got some place I can eat around here? There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon. They knew he was innocent. Starting to dislike you. A lot. And they didn't give a damn. That's okay, Warren. Don't worry about the soap. He's tough. Just save him. Drag. Don't move. I don't want you to cut your own throat. John Rambo. One man who's been pushed too far. You're finished! You've gone as far as you're gonna go! And straight for the top. Right on top. There's no way out of here except through us. He was hunted. Trapped. There he is! On the cliff! And forced to fight back. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Teasel, you and all your men couldn't handle him before. Now, what makes you think you can handle him now? Because God knows what damage he's prepared to do. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. Are you telling me that 200 men against your boy is a no-win situation for us? You send that money, don't forget one thing. Good supply of body bags. Sylvester Stallone. This time he's fighting for his life. First Blood. First Blood was not your typical action film, and John Rambo was not yet your typical action hero. A homeless Vietnam veteran, Rambo didn't want any trouble. He just wanted to visit an old Nam comrade who was living in the Pacific Northwest only to discover his pal died the previous year from cancer due to exposure to Agent Orange during the war. He tries to pass through a town full of asshole sheriffs, and the shit really hits the fan when the boss tries to show just how much of a dick he can really be. And man, Brian Dennehy could be a really great dick when he wanted to be. Sylvester Stallone was not the original choice to play John Rambo. Steve McQueen was first considered for the role, but he would have been much too old to play the role. Stallone came aboard to star, and he also helped write the screenplay. And why not? Don't forget, by this time, he had already written a Best Picture winner. A lot of people forget that, that before he became an action star, Stallone wrote the original Rocky. Stallone, the writer, knows what will work for Stallone, the actor. In the original novel by David Morrell, Rambo was a fucking killing machine. And in the police... In the pre-Stallone drafts, Rambo directly killed 16 of the sheriffs and National Guardsmen who were, per- who were pursuing him. Stallone made sure, during his seven rewrites of the script, that Rambo wasn't directly responsible for any of the deaths. And First Blood definitely worked with the audiences. The film opened in 901 theaters on October 22nd, and it would be the number one film in the nation, grossing $6.64 million dollars. The number two film of the week, Halloween, Season of the Witch, would open on nearly 400 more screens, but would gross $300,000 less. First Blood would play in theaters for almost four months, ending its run with $47.2 million in American sales, and it would also gross another $78 million worldwide. However, Orion would not be involved with any of those sequels. And... That's going to wrap it up for this first episode of our look back at Orion Pictures. 
Our next episode will cover the next four years in Orion history from 1983 to 1986, which includes some of the biggest movies in the company's history and some of the strangest. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast sources. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which helps the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.